Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. I want to start this episode by saying just how blown away I am by the incredible work that this week's couple does together. Laura Stachel and Hal Aronson are literally changing the world and saving lives through their nonprofit, We Care Solar. And the truth is that neither of them could have done this on their own. Their marriage has informed their work, and their work has informed their marriage. Here's a little background. Laura Stachel is an OBGYN and public health professional. When she first traveled to Nigeria on a research trip, she realized that women and children were dying during childbirth because hospitals had no electricity. You know, I watched babies that couldn't be resuscitated because there wasn't enough light for them, for the nurses and the midwives to be actually able to attend them. She called her husband Hal and explained the problem. Hal saw a solution and he immediately began to design solar energy programs for these hospitals. Hal is the penultimate problem solver. Like, that's just in his DNA. He, he loves trying to solve problems. And so, you know, even before I got back, he said, when you get back, I think I have a solution. You know, why don't you come back and let's talk about how solar electricity could help address this problem. Laura came back and they got to work. So I designed a system that would be a complete solar electric system that would fit into a suitcase and including solar panel and battery and charge control and all the parts you need for it to really work. And it was designed to be a small, robust demo. I just pulled together out of parts in my shop. 
And so that's what she took back to Nigeria with her on her next trip. Two decades later, they've made a bigger impact than they ever could have imagined. I've been at some clinics where people had no idea necessarily that we're coming. And then they're like, oh, my God, you've just answered my dreams. Like, I don't have to be afraid to go to work at night. It is frightening for health workers. We're still a nonprofit. We rely on individual donors and foundations to help support this goal. But through this initiative, we've now reached more than 6,200 health facilities, serving more than 7.5 million mothers and newborns. I'm Joe Piazza, and this is Committed. Well, I was working as an obstetrician gynecologist. I had two children, I think ages seven and nine at the time, and I was really busy. So it was a very hard time for me to meet somebody. Laura had been divorced for about six years. She was a single mom, and she was also working around the clock as an OBGYN. So just trying to balance motherhood and my work really took up most of my time. It wasn't very easy to meet anybody. And at that time, which was, I guess, about 1999, the internet was just becoming a thing. And I learned about online dating. And so I signed up for Match.com. And so I thought about the kind of relationships I'd had in the past and what things worked and what hadn't, and then said, well, I don't actually have to meet this person face-to-face, so why don't I just go for anything and everything that I thought would be fantastic in a partner? So I really tried to write down all of my ideals for a relationship and put that out online. Want to go next? Mm -hmm. I was newly moved to Berkeley, and I was teaching at San Francisco State University, and I was doing some online dating as well. So it was a bit funny because internet was still so new that I really didn't know how to use it well. And I actually, in the first week or so, met a couple of guys who I thought would be really great when I saw them online. And then when I met them in person for you know a very short meeting, I realized immediately it wasn't gonna work. So I decided that wasn't the way for me to meet someone. And so I tried to get off of the online dating. And after entering the data for getting off, it had a button that said submit. And I thought submit meant I was still staying on. So I never hit that button. And so it was actually the next morning when Hal wrote to me after I thought I was no longer doing any online dating. They met at a coffee shop called Cafe Roma at 8 a.m. Yeah, an 8 a.m. coffee date. Whoever sets a date they think is going to be amazing at 8 a.m. The truth is both of them thought this was going to be a quick in and out. Their expectations were low. Add on to that the fact that Laura was completely exhausted because she'd been on call the entire night before delivering babies. But the moment I saw him, like I locked into his eyes and I know we were talking. I know I like what we talked about, but I really had this like double level of what was going on. I was just so taken by him. When she came in there, I uh, found I was immediately drawn in by her. And then we didn't want to say goodbye. And so... We kind of broke all the early rules of 
online dating. I had him walk me back to my office. He got to see all the people I had worked with. He walked me into my office and, and then we gave a hug and parted because he was about to go on a trip for a few days. Anyway, <laughs> he's not saying anything. So after just a few days of separation, he came back a bit early from the trip and we went on a hike. He brought me dinner and we were together every day after that. We just continued to be with each other nonstop after that. Hal proposed really quickly, but then he got nervous. Laura had this crazy schedule and she also had two small kids. Hal had already been a stepfather in his previous marriage and all of this seemed like a lot to take on. But then Laura got pregnant. I think the one thing I would say about the pregnancy was that it really seemed to solidify the family. It really brought the children together like we had this new common goal, which was raising this little baby. So all four of us were like her parents. Laura was 18 weeks along when they signed a ketubah, the Jewish wedding contract. That was around November of the year 2000. And at the time, we wanted to make a really inclusive event. And so I think Hal must have written, what, seven different... <laughs> we wrote our own ceremony. Yeah, what did you do? Seven different... What do you call that when you write Seven that? blessings. Oh, seven, seven drafts. Yeah, so Hal wrote... You know, we wanted to do our own ceremony. Hal wrote about seven different drafts, and then we gave everybody there a part. So the idea was to have our friends marry us, and we followed a lot of the Jewish traditions. I painted a ketubah. So in my last life, I used to do a lot of artwork. So I painted a ketubah. I painted a silk chuppah, which is the cloth that you lift up above the couple during a Jewish ceremony. And then we wrote out the programs, and then I was even making the hors d'oeuvres. I mean, it was very, very homespun. But it, it didn't, you know, necessarily follow the correct format for an official Jewish wedding. And I think for us, the most important thing was just to feel like we had made this commitment within our community. And so we never followed through and actually had the legal papers done at that time. So I think in our heart, we felt like a married couple, but we were not legally married. Their daughter, Rachel, was born in April 2001. Laura had the baby, and she immediately went back to work. Her practice was still insanely busy. There was a six or seven week wait for people to come and get to see me. And we were basically managing our two different careers and the children. And in the midst of this, I was doing a cesarean section one night and felt a searing pain go down my back and was unable to really do surgery well with my right arm. And I had a CT scan the next day and it showed that I had degenerative disc disease in my back. And I basically had little bone spurs that were pressing on the nerves to my arm. And I immediately had to change what I was doing. I went into rehabilitation to try and, and get better functioning of my arm. I think I initially stopped doing surgeries and then they said I needed to stop doing deliveries. And then my career was basically brought to a halt. And for about a year, I just had to focus on my health. And I had, I think at that time, a year and a half old baby. I couldn't carry her. I couldn't even sit up through a full dinner. I had to lay down a lot and then do things like core strengthening and massage and acupuncture. I was trying to do all of these different remedies to get my back to work better. And they told me I shouldn't really go back into medicine until I no longer had pain for an entire month. And that month never came. I was never able to really sit up and do all of the normal functioning that a busy clinical physician would do. 
This put Laura at a major crossroads. She'd loved her work as an OBGYN. It was her entire life, and she was a self-described workaholic. But this injury made it impossible to do. In the meantime, Hal had left his job in academia to become an early solar evangelist. He'd recently founded a nonprofit to teach solar energy in schools and to train young people to install solar in low-income housing. I decided that maybe I should try and do something very different. And I had always had an interest in public health care, and I always felt sort of deep inside that maybe my role was to, I don't know, have some impact on maternal child health in some way. So when I was able to sit up long enough to be in classes, I enrolled in the maternal and child health program at UC Berkeley School of Public Health and started learning about issues that were facing women and children worldwide. And one of those issues was the very high rates of maternal mortality. Now, when I had been in OBGYN, I had worked hand in hand with midwives. I had thought about deliveries as a very joyful event. But what hadn't occurred to me was that worldwide, hundreds of thousands of women died every year from complications of pregnancy and childbirth, and more than a million newborns don't survive the first month of birth. And so as I learned about the realities for women in other parts of the world, I felt really compelled to do something about that. And I had been invited to join a project that UC Berkeley was doing with a teaching hospital in northern Nigeria to try and build the capacity of Nigerian doctors to do research in maternal mortality. And because of my background as an OBGYN, I was pretty well qualified to go as a consultant to this project. And it involved going into hospitals to actually see what was happening when patients arrived at the hospital to try and understand some of the root causes of high rates of maternal mortality. At this time, Nigeria had one of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the world. Nigeria accounted for only 2% of the world's population and 14% of maternal deaths. When she went over there, Laura knew that things would be different than they were in the United States. What she didn't realize is that the hospital would be without electricity for 12 hours every day, sometimes more. There you go, you're getting all wrapped up. So this baby is about five minutes old. Yeah, welcome to the world, little one. And the lights just went out, and there's no more light. And I began to witness what it meant to be a hospital without reliable electricity. It meant that there weren't lights available every night, so people could be doing deliveries by candlelight or by kerosene lantern. It meant that the operating room couldn't rely on continuous lighting for surgeries, that people would race as the sun was setting to try and get any surgeries done because they knew they might not have light after the sun goes down. It meant you couldn't use equipment that was reliant on electricity. So in the surgery, that could mean the suction machine or cautery devices that helped to coagulate blood vessels. And in the rest of the hospital, it could be diagnostic equipment like ultrasounds or incubators for baby or in the laboratory, even having a blood bank refrigerator so that if a woman was hemorrhaging and needed a transfusion, she could get an immediate transfusion. And... At the same time, the hospital was dealing with some of the most critically ill people I had ever seen because so many women were trying to deliver at home and it was only those that failed to have a natural home birth 
that would end up in the hospital. So women were being admitted with complication after complication. And then my colleagues who were trained to be good clinicians were struggling in a setting that didn't have reliable light. I mean, I was just in situations where I was actually helping with the C-section when the lights went out and no one else even gasped because they were so accustomed to this type of problem. Or, you know, I watched babies that couldn't be resuscitated because there wasn't enough light for them, for the nurses and the midwives to be actually able to attend them. And up until that point, I don't think I had ever seen the relevance of Hal's work in solar with, you know, the work that I was doing in health and now in global health care. But those two weeks were so illuminating in sort of showing me the tragic consequences of energy poverty on maternal and newborn survival. And I began to write letters home to Hal and to others explaining sort of these tragic situations that I was seeing. And Hal came up with a response. I love this part of the story because Hal didn't just listen to his wife. And of course, we always want someone to listen to us when we see a problem. We want to talk about it. We want to hear what the words sound like out loud. But Hal did so much more than listen. Hal offered a solution. Hal is the penultimate problem solver. Like, that's just in his DNA. He, he loves trying to solve problems. And so, you know, even before I got back, he said, when you get back, I think I have a solution. You know, why don't you come back and let's talk about how solar electricity could help address this problem. What I love about solar electricity is you can pretty much create electricity anywhere there is sunlight. And I knew that Nigeria is in like a primo location for solar because it's close to the equator. It's in the tropics. I said, this is a really easy problem or an appropriate problem for solar to solve. And that got me really excited. She's right. I do like solving problems and I do love solar electricity and the opportunity that maybe helps save some lives and to make doctors and midwives jobs easier through solar was a very exciting opportunity for me. So I immediately got excited about building systems that would be appropriate to the setting that they were going to go to. And so when I got back, you know, Hal tried to find out more about the hospital from me and began sketching out the design for solar electric systems that could be appropriately installed in the areas that, that we thought would be most critical for maternal survival. So he designed a system for the maternity ward, for the labor and delivery room, for the operating theater, and also for the laboratory with the idea that maybe we could bring in a solar-powered blood bank refrigerator. And so at that moment, we had this design, but we had no funding for this. To raise money, Laura entered a student competition at UC Berkeley. They didn't win, but they did get an honorable mention. And I was really just bereft. I was so upset because I said, no, now we don't have the money to do this project. And, and so I called the head of the hospital in Nigeria and I said, Dr. Mawazo, I'm so sorry. You know, we had this idea to bring solar electricity for your hospital, but we didn't win the competition. We only got honorable mention. And he said, don't worry, Laura, you planted a seed. And from that seed, a great tree will grow. <laughs> And within 24 hours, one of the judges from the competition actually found my number and called me at home and said, you guys should have won. How much do you need? 
and I doubled the amount that the... Uh, oh my God, that's amazing. I just unmuted myself to say that's amazing instead of just saying it to myself. <laughs> so he said, how much do you need? And so I quickly doubled the amount that the competition had for. The competition, I think, had a total of 12500 and I told him 25000 And this Berkeley key official ended up finding another department in the in the school to give us the funding. It was the Blum Center for Developing Economies through their Big Ideas program. And so we ended up getting $25,000 and the funds to actually pull this off. And again, at that moment, we were thrilled and excited, but we really had no idea how to do solar on the other side of the world. Time for a quick break. When we get back, Laura and Hal try to figure out how to turn the lights on on the other side of the world. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. And I said, Hal, you've got to come back with me. You need to now teach them about solar and, you know, do the planning. And Hal was, you know, fairly squeamish about the things that he had seen from my photos. And he said, no, I don't think I really want to go back. You're going to need to teach them. And I said, but I don't know anything about solar. So Hal started to teach her. And then he began to figure out a way to train people halfway around the world how to build their own solar systems. So I designed a system that would be a complete solar electric system that would fit into a suitcase, and including solar panel and battery and charge control and all the parts you need for it to really work. And it was designed to be a small, robust demo. I just pulled together out of parts in my shop. And so that's what she took back to Nigeria with her on her next trip. And here I was trying to get through, you know, an airport and out of customs so that people wouldn't, you know, think I was doing something horrendous. So we kind of saw this as a stealth operation. We wanted everything to fit in my suitcase so I could get through. And it's very funny that that's really the history behind the solar suitcase was something that could be carried and could be easily brought into country. But I brought this equipment to my colleagues at the hospital in Nigeria, and they were immediately entranced. And I showed them, you know, that we had designs for a much larger system. And they said, no, you must leave this demo kit right here. And I said, no, oh, no, no, sorry. So I showed them this and they said, you must leave this equipment right here. And I said, no, you don't understand. This is a demonstration kit. You're going to get a much larger system. And they said, you don't understand. This could help us save lives right now. And so that really was the first, what would you say, the predecessor of what we now call the solar suitcase. That was a light bulb moment for us in a, in a couple of ways. One, what they showed us was that a rather modest system 
could be what they needed to be able to give people the care they needed. And so that meant that we could build something that would be robust, small, and reproducible that would take care of the most important electricity, what I came to call the first 100 watts. Kind of like if you're short on water, the most important water is your drinking water, which might be the first gallon or the first you know, quart or whatever. Hospitals would like to have everything powered, but that was the key so that the surgeons could have light to do the operation by, take care of their patients, see what's going on, see if the baby was in distress. And the other thing that I kind of flashed on as Laura was talking was that the doctors knew what they needed more than we knew what they needed. So they said, you don't understand this small amount of electricity can make a difference. And I think it's a very important principle in people coming from places like the United States wanting to help people in low resource areas is understanding that the local knowledge can be very, very important. So that those doctors had a very good insight that we didn't have at that moment. They originally had these grand plans. Provide this massive solar energy system to an entire hospital. But what they quickly learned is that the Nigerian doctors knew best what they needed. They knew that even the small amount of light that the solar suitcase would provide would change lives in their hospital, would save lives. They also knew that it could be easily reproduced. So Laura and Hal kept that idea in the back of their minds while they went forward with the big plans to electrify the hospital anyway. We actually did that over the course of the next year. And so about a year after my first visit, we were able to have a very public launch of solar electricity in the hospital. and. One of the things that happened was that the maternal death rate, which had been about three to eight women dying every month from complications of pregnancy and childbirth in a, in a labor room that delivered about 150 patients a month, that rate plummeted. There was about a 70% drop in maternal death rate. And at the same time, the hospital was able to admit more patients at night because they were no longer turning away people that were coming with critical problems because the hospital was in shroud and darkness. So that combination of being able to see more patients and save more lives was profound. And I hadn't realized at that time that what the hospital was experiencing was something that a lot of health facilities were experiencing. And so my colleagues at the hospital began bringing me to visit other clinicians at smaller clinics. And they were all very happy that I helped the hospital, but they said, we're in the dark too, can't you help us? And so that idea that there were lots of facilities that were in need, coupled with the idea that even that small amount of electricity could be helpful, was when we began thinking maybe we should intentionally be making suitcase-sized systems that I could start bringing back with me on my subsequent trips. Laura was traveling to Nigeria on a regular basis. She'd go for maybe two or three weeks at a time, come back home, and then take another trip. So she might go like four times in a year. And so because we knew that there was such a need for the solar suitcase, every time before Laura would go for a trip, we would manufacture a bunch of them in our backyard. And our neighbors would help. Sometimes if I was doing an educational program with a high school or a college, the teachers would work with their students to get the parts. I'd created a bill of materials so they could know what parts and a wiring diagram. They'd build them. I'd I'd check it for quality. We'd find the right size solar panels that she could carry on an airplane and off she'd go, often dragging. Oh, and our neighbors would donate luggage they didn't want anymore. That's so right. I would bring her to the airport. She would literally, by herself, 
be pulling three full-sized suitcases on rollers. <laughs> I didn't know how. She always managed somehow to navigate her way through the airport, pulling all this luggage. And, and it was just very exciting. I know I said this already. This is one of those things that I just can't say enough. I love that Laura saw this problem, she saw this need, and that Hal is the one who saw a solution. And it's not just that he saw it, because a lot of people can see a problem and understand a problem and even offer solutions to a problem. But Hal, he followed through. He followed through and he helped her fix it. For me, this feels like the very thing that we talk about when we say that we want a marriage, our marriage, to feel like a team effort. So the two of them are building these solar suitcases right in their backyard. Laura is the one schlepping them back and forth across the ocean to clinics in Africa. And at the same time, they were also raising three kids who are about 12, 10, and 7. So I'd say the biggest impact was really on the seven-year-old because her mom would sort of go off. And I think that was a, that was a challenge. I mean, it was certainly really, it meant a lot to, I think, all of us that we were doing something that was really helping the lives of, you know, people on the other side of the world. But Rachel had to really share us and share me in particular with with a lot of other people. And so... You know, it really takes a special person to feel like that they can sort of believe in the mission in order to do that. And, you know, I tried very hard to be around when there were really critical things happening for her, but you can't always predict when you're going to, you know, be needed. And so sometimes I'd be far away and have to do things by phone when I would have much rather been there in person for her. It was a real stress on the family, but I just would say also that it was a very exciting time for our family. Laura and I, we're actually getting to do something together that made a difference in the world. And it was definitely our complementary skills, but we shared a passion together. And that was very exciting to build that together. And we were hoping that it would be exciting for the kids as well. The problem was when you start something, especially when we started to become a nonprofit and when the demand for the solar suitcases kept increasing and we started to get some real funding, so that we're, our numbers were going up, but we were still producing them in our house. We were operating at peak demand for our energy. So we were working through the weekends. We never took vacations. And that was a point where we couldn't give our kids as much attention as we wanted to. At the same time, our kids got to meet some really amazing people. We would have Maasai warriors visit us at the house from the Lost Boys of Sudan, wonderful people in the nonprofit or solar world. And so, and they were very inclusive of Rachel when she was young. And she became quite an expert on the solar suitcase herself. We have some amazing videos of her explaining how to build a solar electric system because that was the, the building was happening in our yard. So she was bringing that in. So that was part was good. But at the same time as a father, at first I didn't travel at all, but then later maybe I only travel once or twice a year. I got to have a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with my daughter and we got to kind of move at my pace, which is much slower than Laura's pace. And, and I felt like I got to know my daughter in a way that maybe I wouldn't have had she'd been dealing with both parents at the same time. There was definitely some benefit in the time away as well. In the beginning, the two of them were working on a very localized and specific problem, electrifying health clinics in Nigeria. 
And I had gone to a global conference and I had heard a wonderful speech by Nicholas Kristof. And I spoke to him afterwards and told him how inspirational he was and mentioned what we were doing. And unbeknownst to me, he wrote about us in his blog the next day. And we started getting requests from solar suitcases from around the world and donations started coming in. And that was about the time when I started realizing, wow, this is a problem that is going far beyond Northern Nigeria. And it turns out that to the best of our understanding, there are probably hundreds of thousands of health facilities that don't have reliable electricity. Or any electricity. Yeah, that many of them are completely off grid, that health workers who are trying to provide life-saving care are going to work knowing that they only have kerosene lanterns or like in Zimbabwe, they use, usually use candles as their only form of light at night. They're not able to use equipment depending on electricity. And so we began to realize that this sort of contribution that we were making could have far wider implications than we had originally realized. But I just want to say, just to give you a sense of what it's like in sub-Saharan Africa, most people still live in rural areas. I think about, I'm not sure, maybe 80% of the population is rural. They live in villages. And there might be a health center that serves a couple of villages. So it's not like here where you think of going to a centralized hospital if you have to deliver a baby. If you get pregnant and you do decide to go get some help from a midwife, you're going to the local health clinic, health center too, which is maybe got three or four rooms. It's got one midwife in it, doesn't have electricity usually. Often the mother has to bring her own light source, either batteries for a torch or candles. So that's the kind of setting in which our solar suitcase was incredibly useful because it was a complete in a box that actually mounted to the wall of the clinic system that could be installed on the clinic in about three hours, right? So it would it was really suited to that. I'm so glad that you described what the setting was like. And, and I'll just tell you as a physician to be able to go on a trip, maybe I'm in a car for a while, maybe I'm taking a canoe, maybe I'm walking quite a distance to get there, to arrive and then to bring a midwife who has struggled on her own to sort of care for all the people of the community, to be able to bring something like a solar electric kit. It is one of the most gratifying and amazing experiences that I think I've ever had in my life. I've been at some clinics where people had no idea necessarily that we're coming. And then they're like, oh my God, you've just answered my dreams. Like I don't have to be afraid to go to work at night. It is frightening for health workers. And more recently when people had cell phone technology, a lot of them put cell phones in their mouths as the way to keep their hands free during deliveries. So they're in a health center that may not have the best hygiene to begin with. And they're holding this cell phone. They can't communicate with patients. They're trying to deliver babies. They're trying to save a mother and a baby. And it is the most challenging thing. I consider these health workers the real heroes of this story because they're the ones that go to work every night. Oh, I just want to add, I mean, I, I'm glad you're saying that because you got to also know that when they stick their cell phone in their mouth to light up the delivery, which you can imagine is not the best light to to see how the mother's doing. Then the solar suitcase. So when we give them the solar suitcase, you watch this layer of stress just melt away from their body. Their shoulders relax. They are so excited. And when you show them they can even recharge their cell phone off the solar suitcase, 
they are blown away. Now you've saved them money, you've saved them from being alone, and they get to hang on to their cell phone while they're being doing their work. So it's like a huge change in their lives. Around that time, the UN was being focusing on sustainable energy for all, and there was something called the Sustainable Energy for All Initiative. And they recognized that there were more than a billion people that don't have access to modern electricity, but buried within those numbers were health facilities. And so we began to talk to them and said, you know, you should also be bringing up this issue of health facility electrification. And they said, well, we don't have anyone who's an expert on that. Can you be part of this? So I started leading groups that were focused on health facility electrification and sort of working both at the level of advocacy as well as us starting our organization. So our nonprofit got launched in about 2010, which is two years after we helped that first hospital. And so as we built our organization and began to learn from having done real field work in a number of different countries, the solar suitcase evolved into something that could be manufactured in a real factory. And we started including things like all of the hardware needed. And we began to create training programs so that people could both learn how to use the solar suitcase. And then later, people could learn how to do installations. And so now our programs include capacity building workshops where we train people and we try and promote women as solar installers wherever we can so that women can both be the leaders of our organization as well as the beneficiaries of a lot of the technology. Laura and Hal realized the importance of partnership very early on, not just with one another, but with their global partners around the world. They began to partner with international NGOs, UN agencies, and governments in other countries who were in charge of steering the health policies for their country. And a couple of years ago, we initiated what's called the Light Every Birth Initiative. And we realized that it really should be a right for women to have safe deliveries and clean well at health centers. It shouldn't be that just because someone's born in one location, they don't even have something as basic as light for their delivery versus another. And we were hearing stories when we were doing, you know, intermittently helping some health centers and not others that people might walk away from their own village to another village just because they knew the other village had light and their village didn't. So we started to imagine what would it look like if we reached every health center in need within a country. And we called this Light of Rebirth. And we are working with a coalition of partners around three fundamental beliefs. One, that every woman has the right to a safe delivery. Two, that every health center is entitled to reliable electricity. And three, that solar powers offers an immediate and sustainable solution to this global problem. And... We work, we're still a nonprofit. We rely on individual donors and foundations to help support this goal. But through this initiative, we've now reached more than 6,200 health facilities, serving more than 7.5 million mothers and newborns. So the first country where we lit up all the health centers that still needed to be lit up and got all God's solar suitcases was Liberia. And that was hundreds of systems. Yeah, more than 400. 400 systems. And then I think we're doing it in Zimbabwe. So the first light of your birth country was Liberia. Was Liberia. With 435 health centers. And the next one that launched was in Uganda, where we're aiming to reach 2,500. And Zimbabwe, 
which is 1,400 health centers. And then Sierra Leone is our most recent Light Every Birth country. And these are countries where maternal mortality rates are high, the electrification rates, rates are really low, and where the governments have really joined with us on this approach to Light Every Birth. And one of the things that I think that I like to share is that Sometimes people hear this and they think, oh, we had some master plan right from the beginning that we imagined that we could, you know, create an organization and create an international movement. And I really want to let your listeners know that there was not a master plan at the beginning. There was basically the identification of a problem and then the decision as a couple, like, what do we do knowing this problem exists? Do we pretend that we didn't see it or know about it or do we think about what we could do to solve it? And so the initial goal was really to just solve one problem. And once that problem was solved, the opportunity came about to make the second decision. Did we want to help the other health facilities that we learned about in the surrounding area in Nigeria? And so then, you know, Hal put on his kind of engineering hat and tried to think about, well, how do we make more of these suitcase-sized systems? And then we got the third problem that we got to consider solving. What if there's places even beyond Nigeria that have the same needs? How do we start replicating this and scaling it up? And so we kept having sort of doors being in front of us and making the decision together, do we step through this one or not? I think one of our hopes, and it still is our hope and also maybe our strategy, is that other people will see us coming up with a solution and they will come up with solutions. And in parallel, we will start to eliminate this energy, this electricity poverty. I want to play a short clip here from a trip that Laura made to Uganda. In it, a midwife explains that before she got the solar suitcase, she had to deliver the babies by candlelight. Before, for when there is no light, we used to use lanterns and sometimes candles and we get light. My name is Kamushawa Anasiata, a midwife. So doing all of this together, tackling like one problem then leads to another problem, which leads to another problem. Does that bring you guys closer together? Does it tear you apart? What does it do to your relationship as you're trying to tackle this gigantic problem that affects so many people all over the world? I would say it's 80% good for us and 20% hard for us. Certainly when I watch Laura give a talk, I fall in love with her all over again because I really love and admire her dedication to helping others. I am blown away, as I imagine you might be too, about how eloquent she is about the problem. I love watching how she works with people, whether they're the midwife in the clinic or even the rural African mother or the the chief minister of a whole country like Uganda, the the minister of health, permanent secretary of health, or at the UN, even with Ban Ki-moon. I just love how she's treats everybody with such kindness and respect and how she's like kept her energy up doing this. I've, I've had periods where I was really run, ran out of energy, but Laura's kind of kept the level of the energy up to keep the organization moving forward year after year. It's been about 12 years now and she is relentless. It's unbelievable. So 
to me, I love Laura for that. And when I watch her, I feel so grateful that I'm partnered with such a wonderful person that can do this and does do this. There's not a but. (laughs) I would have thought you were going to say at the same time, you know. You know know what? These days, I don't feel a but. I think that there were times over the course of our work, I felt like I was not getting the attention that I would have liked to have gotten because it was so much of our energy was going outward. But over time, I think we've started to find another balance. And also, I've changed in ways that I can spend more time in gratitude and appreciation and less times in the what about me kind of phase. So that's a really nice thing. And it's really given me a level of fulfillment in life that, that I don't know, that's given me this amount of peace at this stage. I'm now 65. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of transitioning into, you know, facing the fact that my time on earth is limited, at least with good health for a a while. And it's a really good feeling to know that I got to participate in creating something in the world that feels like it makes things better. And I couldn't have done it unless Laura and I had come together to do it. And I would say that is the most important thing to me, to know that we did this together. And that really does crack open my heart in a very special way. It's beautiful. That was beautiful. So <laughs> lovely. And I think that there were many times over the course of the last decade that we really felt like either individually or as a family, we almost were at our breaking point because you're putting all of your energy around the clock into this project. Keep in mind the people that we're working with are on the other side of the world. So we're often speaking with them in the middle of the night. I mean, I've had people call me two in the morning to say their charge controller was having a blinking light. What does it mean? I mean, so like our lives were completely upended by this. And sometimes we're feeling like, can we keep doing this? It's so hard. And then we'll get a call from someone that will just be transformative. And I'm thinking in particular, we got a call from one doctor. He had been visiting New York from the DR Congo, had heard about the solar suitcase, and he had asked us if we could please send him a solar suitcase. He was going back to the DR Congo like immediately. And I was like, oh, we can't do this. And Hal's like, oh, of course, you know, Mr. Problem Solver, let's just ship it overnight. I'm sure he can get it. We'll teach him on Skype how to do this. This was before Zoom. And so we were trying to teach this guy over Skype. And we said, look, I don't think you really got the full training. When you get to the DR Congo, call us because we want to help you out. And we didn't hear from him for five weeks. And I said, Hal, he probably had the suitcase confiscated in customs. Why did you do this? He finally called us. This doctor, his name is Dr. Jacques Sebasajo. And he said, I'm so sorry I didn't call you immediately. The day I got to the island on which I work, which has no other electricity, there was a woman delivering with twins. And he said, the solar suitcase was great. We were able to have a successful delivery. But the next day, there was an outbreak of cholera. And for the next 30 days, my team took care of 122 mothers, fathers, and children with this disease. He said, in the past, we would lose half of our patients to cholera. 80% of those deaths happened at night. He said, with the solar suitcase, for the first time in the history of our island, everyone survived. And he said, we are witnessing what light means in communities where night means death to those in need of emergency care after the sun goes down. And Hal and I were on that call. I remember it was, we were both so tired from all the work and we had tears in our eyes. Like we were just crying and we were like, there's no way we can stop doing this. Like when you hear stories like that, 
it just feels like this is our life's purpose. Keep in mind, I had been a physician delivering babies and everything stopped when I injured my back. Like I no longer had that experience of being so intimately connected with sort of life and death matters. And by creating this very unique organization that integrated both of our skills and talents, it gave me and it gave us a tremendous sense of purpose. Yep. And so even though it was super hard and even though, you know, there was a lot of probably fun things we didn't get to do along the years as a couple, we both, I think, really had that shared, you know, sense of wanting to create change in the world. Creating change in the world is just a nice place for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter, Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. When the pandemic struck last year, Laura was grounded for the first time in more than a decade. I had to cancel literally seven different trips internationally. But one of the things I did get to do, in addition to things we should talk about, which is spending time with my husband, taking morning walks. What was that like? We started, I was afraid. Initially, he said, huh, I wonder if we're going to like each other if we're not having these little safety valve trips where we get to kind of be apart for a little bit. But lo and behold, we really liked each other a lot. We began taking these morning walks where we would get up in time to watch the sunrise, you know, like our, our days start pretty early. So we started in these sunrise walks and I started like looking at the plants and the skyline and taking photographs. So we have this whole other part of ourselves. And then the older kids finally came back because all their lives were disrupted. So we'd have these family dinners and these wonderful talks. Anyway, in the midst of that, I ended up returning to my dissertation and finally finishing it and getting my DRPH at the school last summer. And I think Laura's right. COVID in a sense I mean, it's a a horrible pandemic and we don't at all want to make any light of it. But individually, it did give us a chance to get to know each other better and to go into nature together because the stress of travel was gone. I certainly got to exercise regularly, which was really nice and get into some routines. So it's been it has been for us a blessing. I'm really so sorry for all the harm it's caused people because I know there's probably half the population is really suffering from it of course and we did okay it gave us it gave us a chance to get deeper together and it gave ourselves a chance to be with our kids in a different way when they were more grown and even though we had to eat outdoors because of 
social distancing when our kids mm-hmm. would come in. So we were all shivering outside. We did we did get to to reconnect. So I think that during this last year, with all the time that we got to spend with each other and with the children, I started thinking it would be just an incredible opportunity for us to see if we wanted to really take that extra step, the legal step. Remember, Laura and Hal had been together for 20 years, but they never legally got married. Like, I felt like we were really deepening our commitment to each other, and we were really enjoying being with each other. We started envisioning the ceremony being something that would really be legalized. And so we reached out to our daughter and we, you know, we said to the kids, what would you think about this if it was really legalized? And they were all very excited. And our daughter was really happy to say, yeah, I would love to do that. And so I thought that would just be really fun to sort of give her, you know, that experience of being able to say the words that she would want for us. And we have been a very unconventional family forever. And I think a lot of her initial comments were, were what was always just the things that she was saying? I'm trying to remember. She was pretty, it was a pretty ironic ceremony, but really sweet and heartfelt. Anyway, she did a, she did a, a great job of, 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 of leading the wedding service. It was, it was, a, it was short and sweet. And I, I think it, it did kind of clinch things in a very positive way for the, for the kids. I wasn't even thinking that was what it was for, but then when we started to envision it, it does make them feel better to know that we are in the eyes of the law married. Yeah, I felt other. like the, the family was getting married in some ways, that we were the, we were the center hub, but we were really, really strengthening the entire family. I'm like, I'm enjoying this because this is a time to kind of pause and reflect on our experience. So the interview is very nice for me because when I start to think about the journey Laura and I have been on, it has been an amazing journey, a really, really hard journey. You would, we had no idea of all the challenges and problems that we'd have to solve to do it because we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. But it's just really fun to kind of remember the early days and the middle days and what we brought to it. I'll share something else before we totally hang up because I just looked at my at my desk and I hadn't realized that the statement I said to Hal for our wedding vows is actually right on the screen and, and some of it I think is very pertinent to what we're talking about. I'm just going to read to you some of the things because for some reason I just saw this. The day I met you, my life forever changed. I was drawn to your smile, your penetrating eyes, your intelligence, your politics, your sensitivity and your playfulness. I immediately began to imagine what a life would look like together. And I dreamed of a family and a home and a future filled with friends, music, dance, and adventure. 20 years ago, we took another step. We made a commitment in front of our family and friends to love each other, nurture our own family, encourage and support each other's pursuits, and find a way to weave our complementary passions into a rich future. In those 20 years, we've shared the magnificence of creating a baby, raising three amazing children, extending ourselves to family and friends as they suffered illness and sometimes died, 
created an organization that grew our extended family to Africa and Asia, offered ourselves to our neighbors and community, and even sustained our own illness and injury. We became each other's best friends, making our best effort to grow our relationship and find balance in the midst of ever-increasing demands. Sometimes we felt so joyful that we almost felt guilty having such deep pleasure. Other times those demands stretched us so thin that we wondered how we could continue to hold on. We did hold on and grow, and we learned that a long-term relationship takes compassion and patience and humor and empathy and flexibility and each letting go of the small things so that together we could pursue the big things. We learned how to listen, how to use greater precision in our language, and how to truly appreciate what is rather than perseverate on what is not. Even though we are in our 60s, we are finding that it's possible to deepen our friendship, expand our love, and learn new things about each other. And though this relationship is 20 years old, it also feels 20 years young, a time of beginning. And so as we enter this phase of our lives, I'm truly grateful to be your partner. I am ready to recommit and solidify what we have and eager to grow our relationship in ways we can only imagine. This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. Special thanks to Laura Stachel and Hal Arison. Supervising producer is Ramsey Yunt. Executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klein. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's J-O at committedpodcast.com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty, turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books. And if you pre-order and email me your receipt to joe.piazza at gmail.com or DM me at Instagram, I will give you a free lifetime subscription to our newsletter Over the Influence. We'll be posting exclusive pictures, videos, and show transcripts for the very new season of Committed coming out in February. So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book.